Well, I'm happy to be here. I figured uh, I don't need an introduction, so I can just start. Yeah. <laughs> what the heck? I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, salvation today. Salvation is an, like an interesting word in Buddhism and maybe in Christianity and Judaism and Islam as well. That what is it? You know, what does it give us? Why, why do we feel this need to go in that direction? So a couple of weeks ago, I was invited to a Catholic high school to be on a panel. And we had a, a Jew, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, and a Catholic speaking about salvation. So I learned a lot. <laughs> and, and I went on the internet and I wanted to look up what salvation was for a Christian. And, and I got a pretty generic answer, which I think sounds good to me. In Christianity, salvation through sin, through the sacrifice of Jesus. Okay, so now that didn't apply to me at all. Uh, so, Buddhism, salvation from suffering through the teachings of the Buddha. So see, we have this issue with suffering. And, and we feel that it isn't necessary for us to suffer, that, that we have an option in this. And, and our salvation is found in nirvana. And, and what could nirvana be described as? It could be described as the search for inner peace, salvation from suffering, and liberation from delusion. Now, delusion plays an important part in my life <laughs> as I look around and, and see the world. And, and what I'm doing is I'm applying everything I've learned and felt and understood to be true to my experience in this world. And, and of course, I'm the only one that looks at it in that way. And I'm often surprised when I'm giving a talk to hear the response from the people who have just listened to me speak and what they heard me say. Because a lot of times, I didn't say it. <laughs> but if it's really good, I'll take credit for it. <laughs> so I looked up salvation, I looked up nirvana, and, and I realized in nirvana there are stages that we go through as we get closer and closer to our salvation. And in the early Buddhist tradition of Theravada, they have a wonderful model. So we have these four levels of nirvana. The first level of nirvana is called the stream enterer. One who enters the stream that will take you in the direction of nirvana. It is said once you have met the requirements, you only have seven more lifetimes to go. <laughs> now, if they were human lifetimes, that would be fine because you figure 70, 80 years. But then there's these heavenly lifetimes as well, which could take 100,000 human lifetimes in just one heavenly lifetime. So you could have a really long time to wait for your salvation. 
And what I find interesting about Buddhism as compared to other religions, it's we are very concerned about giving stuff up. Our path is a path of renunciation. We don't need anything more than what we already have. We have all the love and kindness we'll need for this journey. We have all the insight and wisdom we'll need for this journey. But we have roadblocks. We have things that get in our way from realizing we are already there. It's like, for me, coming to Ventura. Well, I, I, I made the trek. The 101 was rather nice today. And I got here, and it would be odd of me to say, I wonder what it's like to be in Ventura while I'm here, because all I have to do is look around to get the idea. And according to Buddhism, we have already been in Nirvana from the beginning. But samsara, this round of birth and death that we are faced with every time we're reborn, seems to dominate the picture. So we miss nirvana, we see samsara, and we suffer because of that. So we've got to do three things to become a stream enterer. And the first thing we need to do is transcend ego. Transcend ego. Have a moment of transcendence where you come to a place of non-dual reality. Now it can happen on the beach in Ventura after a nice dinner and a glass of wine and you're walking along and all of a sudden you sort of disappear into the universe for that one moment and you, and you wonder what kind of wine you just had but, <laughs> but it's really more all the conditions were just exactly right for you to experience transcendence. Now most of us who have experienced that on the beach in Ventura, we'll look at it as an anomaly. It's something that perhaps shouldn't have happened. You wonder if you, the flu is coming, what do I need to do differently in my life so it doesn't happen again? And, and these things then aren't useful to us. But if you have a meditation practice, if you have a practice in morality found in the five precepts, you start to see that this is the result of your practice and you're able to integrate that. So you go beyond self, and now you can say with some justification, because of your personal experience, that self is a process. It's not who I am. It doesn't totally define me, but it's what I use to live and understand this very complicated world I find myself in. The next thing we let go of is the idea that rites and rituals can liberate us. Now, if you go to church, there are all sorts of rites and rituals that you go through. It creates community. It gives you a sense of peace. It reminds you of more important things. But according to Buddhism, it can't take you all the way to nirvana. You have to go beyond it. You have to see the limitations of the rites and the rituals. So once that becomes obvious to you, so far, so good. Now, there is something in Buddhism that we deal with almost daily, and it's called skeptical doubt. 
It could be cynicism as well, but you look around and you just wonder, is this all real? Is this the big truth or is this the little truth? Which tea am I looking at? And, and then you look at the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and you wonder out loud or to yourself, was there ever a guy 2,600 years ago that was able to liberate himself in nirvana? Are the teachings that are represented by him speaking, are those the real teachings? Didn't a bunch of humans write this stuff down? Could they have edited it? Could they have put their own stuff in there? You know, we have a big statue in the back of our meditation center of the founder, the founder of International Buddhist Meditation Center, a Vietnamese monk. And everyone who has looked at that statue says, he never looked like that. <laughs> you know? And I've come to the conclusion, it's the artist that made the statue. We're looking at the artist's representation, not Tick Tianan's representation. So how do we ever know if this is the right stuff? And then the Sangha members, the monks and nuns, are they worthy to be venerated? Well, you know what? When you bow to a monk or a nun, or you, you offer a kind greeting, Literally what you're doing is you're bowing or greeting the robes that he or she is wearing. Not him or her. He or she still has plenty of work to do to get to be venerated. So we come to a place, stream enterer, where we have transcended self and had that direct experience. We realize the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha are valid and real and useful and will help us achieve our salvation. And we also understand that rites and rituals will not get us to nirvana, but they might get us to heaven, and it gives us something to do while we're alive. <laughs> First stage. Second stage. Now the once returner. Once you get to the second stage, you only have to come back one more time to this place called Earth and work real hard and you'll never come back again because when you die, in your death you will be transferred to nirvana. You'll never have to be born again, you'll never have to be sick again, you'll never have to die again. That's really nice. How many times have you died? A lot. How many tears have been shed because you've died so many times by all your friends and relatives? They could fill the oceans. This is a hard place to live. I, we, we must have, at, my at the meditation center where I live, we must have 12 to 15 little animal graves in the backyard. All those little deaths, and every time I've cried, and I've wished them well on their journey, hoping they come back as a human so they can get a room and pay rent. <laughs> So now we come to this, this, this second level, and we don't get rid of anything, but we lessen our burden. So the first thing we lessen is our attachment to sensual desire, sense desire, lust. Now, it's spring, it's spring, all you have to do is look around. And when I look around in spring, everybody looks just a little bit better a little more desirable, which is okay, but see, I'm in the, the business where my celibacy isn't circumstantial. I've decided to give it a try. 
and now I look around and the, and the fire of passion is slowly turning into hot coals. <laughs> and it's okay, but then what happens if a pretty woman wants to hug me once in a while? Do the passions arise again? I've got to be so careful. It's hard to keep them at the hot coal level. <laughs> we have a koi pond in the back of our meditation center. It's been there ever since we opened. We have many koi fish. And you know how I know it's spring? Because it looks like somebody poured a box of Alka-Seltzer into the koi pond. Mating is so messy. I work hard at keeping it clean and purified. And these fish just make the biggest mess. And I don't curse them, I curse the universe. This mandatory replication that we all go through pushed every moment of our life. Humans, we're so unfortunate, we don't have a mating season. 24-7, 12 months a year. It makes me a little sad. <laughs> so we get rid of some of our sense desire, and now we get rid of some of our anger and hatred and ill will. It's lessened. So this, the sensual desire becomes more of a preference than a passion, and the anger and ill will becomes more of an agitation than an action. And that's the second level. But see, this is the reason why we have precepts. This is the reason why we have vows. Because if you don't follow your vows and don't follow your precepts, you can get into trouble. And you've read stories about Buddhist monks or nuns or Buddhist teachers who have found themselves in situations where the hot coals of passion have turned into the flame of desire and they broke their precepts because they're not a Buddha yet, and that's why we have them. So every time those, those feelings arise, it's like pulling the emergency cord on the bus. It comes to a stop, gives us a chance to reflect on what the true nature of our path is and why we want to attain salvation from suffering because no intimate relationship will ever lead to the end of suffering. It'll just lead to love and joy and happiness. <laughs> in the third stage, we're almost there. Now we're called a non-returner. Before we were a once-returner. Now we are a non-returner. That means we will achieve nirvana for sure because when we die, we will go to the five pure abodes. And in one of those abodes, we will achieve nirvana. So the, the non-returner is really good. Once returner, one more time for suffering. Non-returner, never have to suffer again after I die. Groucho Marx said about that, he said, I'm going to try to live forever or die trying. <laughs> and so we only have one more big life, another death. Hopefully it's a good one. And, and then we'll be in nirvana forever and ever and ever because it's unborn and undying, and that's our salvation. Unborn, 
undying, that place that exists not because of creation, not because of birth. Birth starts it all. It starts us going in the direction of old age. It starts us going in the direction of sickness. Everybody gets sick all the time, especially kids. They're building an immune system. I feel sorry for the parents because they're rebuilding their immune system. <laughs> then we get to that place where you have to die. And you know, nobody really knows how to die well. We're not encouraged to die well. We're encouraged to live well. You know, and which is fine while you're alive, but there comes a time in your life where you're going to have to say, I'll be dead soon. What should I do? Cookies and milk? What should I do? If you have been practicing your religious tradition, whatever that is, that will be the doorway to a good death for you. In that religion, there are things you can do to die well. And, and we don't like to talk about it because it seems like such an end. And perhaps it is for most because if you think about life, it's what happens between birth and death. And how long was it before you were here? Forever. It seemed okay. Didn't seem to bother you too much. But then you get here and now you're freaking out because you'll never be here again. And all you got to do is watch the news to realize it's such a not a good place to be. Why would anybody want to give up eternal life for earthly existence? You know, humans aren't kind or friendly until they start working on themselves. It's all about them. It's a tough place to live. Even on the 101, just people go by you so quickly, they don't care, they cut you off, they curse you. I'm thinking, really, it's Sunday morning? <laughs> but that's how people are. So, do I have hatred and ill will? No, just a little agitation. <laughs> so now we have to lose five more things. We've got to get rid of five more things in order for nirvana to take hold in order to be in our salvation. They are, number one, desire for existence in the world of form, which is where we are. If you had to choose between existence and non-existence, you would choose existence, because you think existence is better than non-existence. It's hard to understand what non-existence could be. So we have this existence in the world of form, which is Earth, and it's better than nothing, we tell ourselves, so why not come back? You get rid of that desire for existence in form. But you also have to give the, up the desire for existence in the formless. There are realms of formless existence that we call heaven realms. These are places where you don't need a body. You may just be a consciousness or an energy or a spirit or whatever, and people like that. They think, wow, if I can get rid of this body and just be consciousness, everything will be perfect. But have you ever watched your thoughts for a while? <laughs> Do you think it's going to be perfect just to be your thoughts? Wow. So we've got to give up that too. then we have to give up conceit. 
that, you know, this conceit thing gets us in trouble, but it also makes us available to do public speaking. Then we get up, we give up a little restlessness, you know, a little agitation, and finally we give up this ignorance, this delusion, which is the big issue in Buddhism. We do not have original sin, we have original ignorance. We're blind and deaf to the, thing, the way things really are. We can't see it, we can't hear it. But through the cultivation of mind and the practice of morality, we can come to a place of clarity and kindness which allows us to exist in a world that we have come to see as being perfect in every moment. No reason to change anything. Everything is just the way it's supposed to be. And that takes a while to, to hold on to and, 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 and look at as being a good thing because how could it be just the way it's supposed to be if so many people are dying every day from war or starving because of lack of food or homeless because there's no housing or it's too expensive? How can that be simply the way things are supposed to be or the way things are? And it's that way because this world of ours is ultimately unsatisfactory according to Buddhism and will never be a good place to live. So rather than changing the world, we have decided to change ourselves to live in a perfect way in an imperfect world. And now you might say, but how about all the people that need your help? Are you going to ignore them? Aren't you going to make them better? Don't you wish they had a perfect life? And I would say, no, we don't go after them to have a better life. We go after them and explain to them how to suffer less in the life they have. We don't want to change the world. We want to change the people in the world. And if we can all come to a place of that clarity and kindness, this world may turn out to be a better place, but never a perfect place. So now we've come to nirvana, we've come to a profound acceptance of the way things are. We see the world and hear the world the way it really is. And our obligation to the world now is to help others suffer less. And then we die. And in that death, we will never have to come back again. We will never have to bury anyone again. We'll never have to feel lonely or lost again. We will be in a, an existence that is determined not because of creation or birth, but determined because of nirvana. Unborn, undying, perfect in every way. So that's salvation in Buddhism. It's a lot of work. We don't have grace, unfortunately. We don't have forgiveness either. Karma doesn't care. So we have like a lot of work to do all the time. <laughs> and when we have a bad day or two, it's because of us and the way we looked at the world. And so we say to ourselves, what didn't I see? Why did I choose that over this? What didn't I hear? Why did I make that choice instead of this choice? And through that self-reflection and ultimately transcendence of self, it becomes a place of practice 24-7 in everything you do, think, and say. 
Thank you very much for listening. May you all be saved. So I, I thought I would end with a little blues, huh? Now that we're all thoroughly depressed. Oh. Mm -hmm.